0: been thinking about this lately This is what I suppose Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org London.org. I realise not sitting right with me So I'm on my knees for understanding The more the world I see, the more I see the Fever I fit in, but I'm no diamond ring I got a lot to learn, so I'm listening be looking at something called identity theft. Everyone familiar with the term, identity theft? You hear it about it all the time. You can go to your bank and you pick up a leaflet that talks about identity theft. And in our society, it's something that's huge. Uh, People's identities are being stolen all the time. In fact, the Telegraph reports that in 2009, identity theft was up by 20%. That's a a lot. Um, However... For us as Christians, the idea that I want to bring across of identity theft is not the same as you find sort of in the banking industry and in those industries. What I want to bring out is the fact that you and I have an enemy. The Bible calls him a thief in John chapter 10.10. And it says that he's come to steal, he's come to kill, and he's come to destroy. And what he wants to do is he wants to destroy... Your identity, he wants to steal it away from you and detach you from Christ so that you're sort of this, you know, identity-less person, this sort of detached uh, individual. And this is something that the enemy's been trying to do for millennia, uh, where Christians are going about with this question, Who am I? What am I here for? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? And it's a question that keeps getting asked. And the answer is actually quite simple, Um, but the enemy is always trying to steal away that answer from us, and so uh, oftentimes Christians are running around saying, I I don't know what my life is all about, I don't know what my life is for. And so what we end up doing is we end up trying to search out and create our own identity uh, by looking at the world, and we try and model it after someone or something, and that's how we try to shape who we are. Uh, But the Bible has something very different to say. If you want to open up with me to Genesis chapter 1... As with most, most things, uh, if you want to know where it begins, you turn to the book of Genesis. I, I love the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginning. Uh, if you don't know where the book of Genesis is in your Bible, again, Genesis means beginning. <laughs> when you see table of contents, turn a couple more pages, and there you are, bam, Genesis chapter 1. And I, I want to focus on an idea with you this morning as we consider this idea of identity. And that is this thing that we call the Imago Dei. I, I know it's, it's Latin. Uh, you don't use Latin very much. But this is a phrase you'll want to catch on to. Can you say it with me? Imago Dei. Imago Dei. Great. It means image of God. And we're going to look at that this morning. And this is where we derive who we are in Christ. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, read with me. Uh, then God said, let us make man... In our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here in in, in Genesis, God is creating. And You you all know the creation story. As God begins, He starts and He he creates light, and then He creates, you know, flora and and fauna, or however you say those things—the green stuff out there—and then He creates birds and fish, and then the animals. And God's not done. After all of that, He's created. I I love. There's a little phrase in there in Genesis one. It says, "And He created the stars also," almost as a footnote, like, "Oh, by the way." The cosmos that you know, we get bigger telescopes for and try, and try and see how big the universe is, God did that too. You know, a little asterisk by it. Uh, he, he's created this great creation, but he wasn't done. There's something more that he wanted to create. And so God creates a man, and he creates a woman. And I love the way that this is described. He, he, you, you, first of all, you get this sort of uh, internal conversation happening here. Let us make man in our image. There's this us and our thing going on, uh, and some people might read that and say, you know, I, I didn't realize God was schizophrenic. He's not. There's something great happening here. He's not sort of rambling to himself. Our God is what we call triune. There's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are equally God, and all three are, are, are distinct from one another. Uh, if you ever figure out exactly how that works, please let me know. Um, I, I know it's awesome. I know it's massive. I know it's beyond finding out. And if you, Augustine said this. He said, if, if you can understand God, then your God is too small. So I, I don't think anyone's going to tell me and says, here's exactly how the Trinity works. It, it's a mystery. But God says this. He says, let's make man in our image. So, so you have a plurality in God. He's saying, we want to create a single image of God. But then it's interesting as he goes on, he says there in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Image again is Singular. In the image of God, he created him male and female. It goes to plural again. So a a God who's singular and yet plural, uh, track with me here, please. He's singular and plural. He creates a single image, and that single image is expressed in uh, a plural, two people, okay, a a man and a woman. Uh, Now, hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. I want you to consider with me this word image. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's a word that is "selem." And it's a word that's all through the Old Testament. If you were to grab your concordance and look up this particular Hebrew word, you'd see it everywhere. And you know where the people are worshiping false idols? It would be this word. Where they're wor- worshiping images, it would be this word. What is this idea behind an image? Here's what, what he's uh, basically describing. The word means to hew into a certain shape. Now, it's to represent something. I, I have here a phone, right? If I were to um, call my mom right now. And I were to ring her, I wouldn't do that right now because it's the middle of night over there. I I, I do care about my mom. Um, If I were to ring her up, put her on speakerphone and introduce you all to her, you would all hear her voice, would you not? And I would say, hey, did you meet my mom? Did you speak with my mom this morning? And everyone here would say, yes. And I would say, actually, you didn't. You didn't. You spoke to an image. You spoke to this, this word, Salem, a representative. Actually, what you spoke to was electronic impulses that kind of shot into here, went off somewhere, maybe off a satellite, satellite here or there, and then kind of ends up in Southern California. You didn't actually speak to her directly. You spoke to something that represents her. And this is the idea of the image. You see, you are created in such a way that you represent God. There should be something about the character and quality of God that is imaged forth in your life. In other words, certain things about God. For example, um, we can choose some of the attributes of God. Uh, What's one of the great attributes of God? God is love. Uh, Are you capable of loving? Yeah, why? Because you're made in his image. Uh, God is justice. Are are you capable of justice? Yeah, because God is just. And and certain attributes of God are are communicated. Uh, God is a creator. And those of you who have children, what do you know? You've been fruitful. You've multiplied. You've created. You've created something even in your own image. Sometimes that's a bad thing. But anyway, um, God has has given us, rather he's given creation something that mirrors him, something that emulates him, something that shows him to creation. Here's what one uh, man by the name of Bruce Ware says. He says, people are created in finite representations, images of God, of God's own nature, that in relationship with him and each other, they might be his representatives imaging God and carrying out the responsibilities he has given to them. In this sense, we are images of God in order to image God and his purpose in the ordering of our lives and carrying out of our God-given responsibilities. God has created you to reflect him. So that when creation or other people see you, something of his quality should be visible in your life. And this is this idea of of this Imago Dei. And so you see that, uh, for example, God is a complex unity. That's a nice phrase for you. You can say that with me, complex unity. I love love big words. They make you sound smart. But here's what a complex unity is. It's it's a unity made up of different parts. It's a singular plurality. Okay, Uh, for example... Uh, in, well, in, in, uh, let, let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Because God is creating us in his image, there's something about him that's visible in us, something about his character that's reflected in us. We talked about the fact that man and woman are made in the single image of God. But I, I want you to notice this verse in Genesis two twenty-four. This is no new verse for, for those of you who've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become—say this together with me—one flesh. The two shall become one. Now that word "one" is is, is a special word. Um, it's it's in the Hebrew. And if you're ever going to speak Hebrew, you got to make sure you get some phlegm going. It sounds authentic. Um It's it's just fun to do. <laughs> Uh, One, it's a word that's a complex unity, okay? It's two, but they're one. They're two people, but they're one person, in a sense. Uh, Turn with me to another verse in the book of Deuteronomy. It's four books further to the right. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. I want to to show you, again, those of you who've been following Jesus for a while are familiar with this verse. It's something that is called the Shema, or the Shema. uh, And it's it's this... um, declaration of who God is. Uh, every Jew who, who reads the Torah and reads their Bible knows this verse well. In fact, if you go to their house, you'll see a little um, thing called a mezuzah on their doorpost. Maybe you've seen that there and they, they walk in and they kiss the doorpost as they go in and they, they kiss that thing. Inside of that is this verse. And this verse says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the same Hebrew word. One. God is a, a complex unity. He's, he's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's one God. Three who's, one what? God has created us to image him, to reflect him, and so uh, a marriage should image something about God in creation. A relationship should image something about God. So everything about our lives should reflect something about who God is. Now, um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. You're thinking, you know, that sounds very good and theologically accurate, but I, I've got a bit of a disjoint when I look around and I look at people who are made in the image of God and I, I can't really see God vividly displayed in their life. Something has taken place that has uh, muddied the waters, if you would. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. We're created in the image of God. But that image has been marred. And we'll explain what that means in a moment. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So this great uh, known story is is where uh, Adam, or rather Eve is having a dialogue with a, a serpent. And uh, just so you guys know, if you're ever in a garden and a snake starts talking to you, red flag. Um, she could have used a red flag right there. Um, but, but notice what the serpent says. Has God indeed said? The uh, serpent's trying to get her to doubt God's honesty. Uh, is God being straightforward with you? Is God being true with you? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat nor shall you touch, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. How did God make Adam and Eve? After his likeness, to reflect him. He was to be visible in them. What does the serpent say to Eve? No, 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 no. No, if you want to be like God, you got to eat this fruit. This is the way, and and, and what he's actually encouraging them to do is is not just sort of uh, reflect him, but you can be like him without him. You don't need God. Just have this fruit. This is all you need. You can bypass God and be like him. Okay, that's the lie in the garden. Now, it goes on. uh, Where are we? Verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. He's just as bad as her. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. This Something happens. They're now uh, self-conscious. They're now aware of their nakedness. They're now aware um, that they're naked. Uh, they have made a, a massive decision, and that decision was based not on God, but on self. And they, they realize they're naked, and so they do something that you never want to do. Um, again, they, they, red flag, uh, fig leaves are itchy. Don't make clothes out of them. I'm just saying, it's just not a good idea. Uh, then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, now listen, let me read that again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Have you ever heard God walking? I haven't. Imagine with me, this first couple, there, there's, there's an implication there that this is not the first time God went for a walk in the garden. The implication is Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden. They had a relationship with him. And God would walk in the garden and they would join him for a walk in the garden. Oh, man. I mean, to to just get your head around who God is. I mean, he's he's the pinnacle of beauty. He's the author of beauty. He's, he's the one who is, who is eternally gracious and kind and loving and giving. And, and he's always extending himself towards others. And the message of the Bibles that you see over and over is God moving towards man because he loves man. And here, God is walking in the garden. And they walked with God in the garden, but not this time. They hear the voice of God walking in the garden. What do they do? They hide running from his presence now, where before they'd hear it and it was a call to come. It was a call to come close to him. Now they hear it and they, they cower and they hide. And the Lord, he, I love what he says here. He says there in verse nine, the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Now, when you read the Bible, it doesn't sort of say, and he said it with this sort of tone, maybe as you're reading a, a playwright or something. Uh, but the tone here is not one of, Adam, where are you? And it's not a one of, it. Adam, I can't believe I misplaced it. Where'd you go? I, you were here yesterday. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows exactly where Adam is. Uh, he's not, I, I, I set him down, and I went and got a drink, and he knows. But he's giving, here's what he's doing. He's giving Adam and Eve a chance to respond to him. And this is what, read, read your, your Bible all the way through, and here's what you will see. God reaching out towards fallen man, calling out, saying, come back. Come back to me. Where did you go? It's not because God doesn't know. He, he doesn't, when he calls you he's, and he's saying, hey, hey, where have you been? He's not, he's not wondering because he has no idea. He's giving you opportunity to respond. Well, this is what he's doing with Adam. He's, he's calling out to man, and, and he's, he's asking man to respond. But here's what man has done. Here's what Adam has done. He has sought to make himself apart from God. I'm going to create my own identity independent of you. I'm going to create my own self independent of you. But here's the problem. God has made you a reflection of him. Now, I have here some coins, Probably looking at those saying, what in the world are those for? I didn't realize I was going to a uh, coin collector's club. Okay, I I want you to notice here. Notice on the far right, there's a a brand new pound. It's well-minted. You can see, you know, the crazy-looking beasts on there, kind of like out of the book of Daniel. Uh, You know, the unicorn and the the lionish creature. And the, uh, anyway. (laughs) It's a very clear picture. It's it's freshly stamped. It's minted on. And you ever go to a museum and see how they make these coins? They just stamp the image right on. And whatever the the stamp is, that is forced into that image, and that image will bear that, that picture, that mark. But here's what happened when we sinned. The image on us was of God. So you should be able to see man and get a clear window into who God is like, who he is. But when sin enters the world, look at that far left image. That's a, that's a half shekel. That's what they would use to pay their temple tax. Can you see the face on there? Not really. I mean, the, these two images are the same coin, you know, the same image on them. They're not the same coin itself. But, but you see the face on this one in the middle. And if you look really hard, and you really have to look hard, you can see the outline of where the face was at one point on the other coin, okay? It's still an image, but it's utterly marred. It's it's been so reworked, and it's been pressed upon by other things. Other things have left their impression that have so obscured the image it was supposed to originally represent, okay? This is what we're talking about this morning, That, that Adam was made like this pound, just perfectly a representative of of God and then because of man's sin that image was marred the image is still there but it's greatly been marred and man he seeks to create himself and he seeks to uh, want to order life around himself not around his maker and we get what Romans 1 talks about that men then begin to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever but but If you want to know what image you're making yourself into, all you have to do is look around and see what you worship. What is shaping your life? What is leaving its imprint on you? Uh, There are various things. For some people, it's power. And so their life is geared towards power, and you look at imprints on their life, and they see that, you know, all they ever seem to talk about is getting their promotion. Because that gives them more power over other people. Um, or they, or they, all they ever seem to do is control people. Uh, some people, they, they want to go into ministry because they like power. I'm thinking, man, you just don't get it. You're going to get in there and realize, man, I, I've got to clean everything. I've got to be the servant. This is what I was after. Some people, their God is possessions, and so, you know, you can tell by the stamps in their life, the things that, you know, every, their whole life is geared towards what they get. Other people, their, their God is, is sex, and so the, the imprint on their life is, is all about, you know, getting with another individual. Uh, some people, their God is, is status, and so everything in their life is geared towards gaining their status. And you can look at a person as you can look at a coin, and you can see what's leaving its mark. But what mark were you created to leave? So man being, then begins to create an image that reflects his own God. A God after his own making. And, and I think Psalm 100, verse 3, uh, says it so clearly. Here's what it says. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. God has created us. He made us. If he made us, who do we belong to? Him. We're his. We belong to him. If you made yourself, okay, do whatever you want. Right? But you didn't. You're you're the product of something. I mean, even biologically speaking, you didn't sort of come into existence. It's because of your parents. But ultimately, it's God who creates He's made us, not we ourselves, but the, the fallacy is, is we, we think, you know what? I'm not accountable to him. I can, I can create my own God, and I can reflect that, and I can worship that. Now, Jesus is always calling us back to him. Remember, Adam, where are you? Turn with me to, uh, to Mark 12. Actually, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just relay the story with you for time's sake. Um, it, it's a w- well-known passage where Jesus is there. He's at the temple, and the religious leaders, they were incensed on trying to trap Jesus in his words. You ever notice that? They're always trying to get him to, you know, to say, oops, that's not what I meant. And not once in my Bible has ever said Jesus say, oops, that's not what I meant. Um, he, he's always meaning to say what he says. And they say to Jesus... Uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember that passage? I mean, they, they have Jesus in what we call a catch-22. I mean, there is just no way out of this. And they've thought, thought it through. If he says that we shouldn't, then we get the Romans over here. If he says and we should, then he can't be Messiah. So what's he going to do? And he says, hey, does anyone have a denarius? And, and so they pull out a denarius, and he, he lifts it up, and he shows the denarius, and he says, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription is this? And, um, and, and, and there's a denarius right there. with it. Same image that Jesus would have been holding up. Whose inscription, whose image is this? Using that same word, that same idea. And they say it's Caesar's. And Jesus says this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Whose coin is it? Well, whose image is on it? It's Caesar's. But then Jesus says this. Give to God what is God's. Whose image are you made in? The image of God. And what Jesus is calling man to do is to respond and come back to him. He's saying, you guys need to come back to your maker, to reflect the one whose image you have been stamped with. That's and and that's sort of the, if you want, the what they call the meta-narrative of the whole Bible is that God is wooing man back to himself. He's calling back his belonging to himself. And the thing is, it's only in relationship with him that we understand. Who we are and what our identity is. It's only when we think about the coin earlier, where there was no clear imprint, you could not tell that that was a half shekel. Why? Because it was so marred. In a sense, it was identityless. But what God says is, I, I, I want to give you your identity. So, how does He do it? How do we get our identity? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. know to whom you belong you're then able to recognize your real identity Matthew 16 Jesus goes to a region called Caesarea Philippi verse 12 or verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus, he takes his disciples away. He's going on a retreat. This is just before the transfiguration. And he, he goes to this place called Caesarea Philippi and I'll give you a little background to this particular event. Uh, I have a couple uh, pictures for you, and then we'll get to that. That's Caesarea Philippi right there. Um, there's a, a massive uh, cliff there. You can see the little people in front of that cliff grotto, that cave there. Um, so it's just this huge rock that's there. And it was a pagan worship center. Uh, if you wanted to worship any god under the sun, you could pretty much go there and find, you know, one of the gods you're looking for. Uh, but primarily, it was dedicated to a god named Pan, which, if you go to the next slide, uh, that's what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. On the, on the left, you have that temple. That's to the god Pan, who's the god of the underworld, or Hades, as it's known. And it was right in front of this grotto, this grotto, that hole in the rock, that cave that you saw, which is also known as the Gates of Hell. Now, um, then there's, uh, to the right is a temple for Zeus and then uh, some of the nymphs and whatnot. And that's where Jesus was when he has this dialogue with his disciples. It was, a, it was an area where um, if you wanted to know what people thought of God, who their God was, you can go here and you can see their God's represented, it. Uh, represented, it, 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 represented, um, you, you can go there and you can see, well, some people think God is like this. Some people think God is like that. And that's the whole idea. Whenever you go, come across a culture with myriads of gods, uh, it's this idea that uh, I worship this God because somehow this God expresses something about either my, my desires or my fears. And that's what this was. Is it was an expression of what men thought about God and therefore what they thought about themselves. Okay? Jesus goes there and he says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And there's sort of a double meaning there. Uh, He's asking, who do people think that God is? Well, here's what the Gentiles, the non-Jews, think that God is. He he thinks he's this, and he thinks he's this, and he thinks he's this, and he thinks he's this. You can go to Acts 17 where Paul goes to Athens and there's the thousands and thousands of idols. And you can see the same picture there. But then he he asked them specifically as Jews, who do men say that I am? And they have different ideas. Uh, Some said that he's Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was the one that wrote the book of Lamentations. He's a weeping prophet. And they saw maybe how Jesus had compassion on people, that he was concerned for people. And they saw that, and they say, oh, this is, and, and, you know, listen, for some people, Jesus is nothing more than one who just weeps over people. He's just real, you know, compassionate. That's all Jesus is to them. It's just a compassionate guy uh, you know little children and lambs and you know that sort of thing and he's some people said he's Elijah and Elijah you know was the god of or was the, the prophet of power and he said you know let, let it not rain for seven years and it didn't rain then he said let it rain again and it rained and he called fire down from heaven on that sacrifice and and then he slew 400 prophets of Baal it's a great story and uh, you know he's just a god of power and wonders and people are being raised and and for some people, that's Jesus. He just does miracles. And, and he's just, it's just all about the miracles that Jesus does. For other people, it's another aspect, like John the Baptist. Some say that you're John the Baptist. And for some people, they, their understanding of Jesus is just the call to repent. So he makes whips of cords and drives people out of the temple. Uh, he, um, he calls people to repent. He does all of these things. And that's what some people think about Jesus. Now, let me tell you something. Those are all true, but they're not true independent of the others. He's greater than that. Our our God is a God that has compassion, is he not? But isn't he the one coming again with a robe dipped in blood to make war? Yeah. Isn't he the one that says repent? Yeah, but he's also the one that says don't forbid the little children. Isn't he the one that deals violently with your sin that he might embrace you as a son? Yeah, it's all of that. But you see, we like to sort of, we find something that we like and we want to, that to reflect in our lives, but we want to leave the other stuff aside. This is what was going on in Israel when they looked at Jesus. Hey, I like this about him. I like that, no, nah, I don't like that about he's, he's talking a little bit too rough for me. He's, he's talking a little too soft for me. And we begin to try and get a lopsided Christ. Well, Jesus furthers the question, and he says, who do you say that I am? And this is, this is a key question. I mean, you know, we could talk all day about who do men say that I am, and we could sit here for hours discussing, just pick someone and say, hey, what do people think about Jesus? And they'll, oh, some people say this, some people say this, but what's, what's the key question? Who do you say that I am? Let's, let's bring it home. We can philosophize till the cows come home. You know what I mean? We can sit here and, and, and wax eloquent. But the question is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Well, he asked Peter this question. And Peter's response is, is so profound. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that was prophesied all through the, the Bible to come. And, and, and you're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus, you, you could almost see a smile come on his face. He says, oh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, don't get a big head. You didn't come up with this on your own. Um, <laughs> flesh and blood, this isn't because you're, you're a fisherman, for crying out loud. Um, it's, it's not your strong point, right? Uh, God, God has revealed this. He says, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. This is a revelation from God. The reason Peter knew who Jesus was was because God revealed it to Peter. It's not because Peter was smart, all right? Which is great because that means, hey, I can learn too. Um, But then he he says something very interesting. He says to Peter, notice this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, what was, what, was, what was this guy's name in verse 17? Simon, son of Jonah. What's his name in verse 18? Peter. Jesus says a simple phrase, you are Peter. Peter means rock or stone. And what he's saying is, Jesus is essentially saying, I am giving you your identity. I am telling you who you are. Before this, you were Simon, son of Jonah. And we all know the prophet Jonah. You don't want to be like him, right? Uh, you're, 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 you were this guy, but I'm telling you, now you're Peter. You're a rock. How did he come to this place of getting that identity from Jesus? When he saw who Jesus was. When he understood who Jesus was, all of a sudden it became clear. All of a sudden, Peter now could say, I- I'm Peter. Why? I decided I'm going to be Peter from now on. Just call me the man formerly known as Simon. Right? And just I'll get some funny symbols to make up my name. I'm not going to actually pronounce it. Um, it's It's a name that was given to him by God. God had given him his identity when he responded to the revelation of who God is. See, revelation defined Peter's identity. And all of our identity, the whole idea of identity is something that's derived. Did you know that? You don't create your own identity. You you don't. You can try, but it's not for real. Listen, I, I am a father, And that is not because I decided one day, I think I'm going to be a father. Just call me a father from now on, guys. No. Where's the evidence of your fatherhood? One of them snuck in. He's right there. Uh, I'm a husband. Why? I'm married. I have a wife. That very relationship determines my identity as a, as a husband, my identity as a father, as a brother in the Lord. My identity is determined by the fact that I'm, I, I'm bought by the same blood. I'm adopted son as you guys are. So we're brothers and sisters. Why? Because I decided one day, I'm going to be a brother with you. No, it's, it, was, it was determined. It was determined by something else. I simply have derived it. You don't create your identity. You receive it. And so uh, Peter is in this position where where Jesus gives him his identity. It's established by Jesus, and then Jesus goes on to say, and upon this rock, and we saw the picture there, the massive rock, Jesus says, I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades, symbolized by that place that was known as the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. Interesting, you go there now, and all the temples are squat. They're gone. I mean, that's an artist's reconstruction. That's the best you're ever going to get. Uh, but listen, the rock is still there, and Jesus still reigns. Amen? So how do you know your identity? It's from Jesus. In Adam, your identity is marred, like that coin. Just, and listen, some people, let's be honest, the marring is a little more extreme than others, but it's marred, bottom line. You know, some people, they may sort of reflect some of the attributes of God a little more clearly. Maybe some people are more disposed to showing love, showing kindness, but it's still marred. It's still, listen, it's still jacked up. It still has issues. But listen, uh, in in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we have something that's beautiful. You're a marred image. And in Hebrews chapter 1, says this, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets has now in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory, notice this please and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Would you notice that phrase, express image? You are the Imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. But that image is so marred. And, you know, you could bang on it all day long, with who you think God is and it's never going to resemble Jesus anymore. So what needs to happen? Well that that phrase express image, it's more than just an image. You're an image But this is the express image. This is is the genuine article himself. And the idea is that Jesus has come, and it says there that he purged our sins. In other words, that which has marred you has been wiped away. And the idea is that that stamp, just as the nails were nailed through his hands, that that hammer came down and nailed his imprint on you. Reshaping, refashioning the image so that you can now be identified with God, so that you resemble his, that your, his image would be what's prominent on you, that he would become what's visible on you. And so you have been re-stamped because of Christ. If you're in that position where you've responded to Jesus, and you said, Jesus, I, I, you are God, and my sin is so heinous that it required you coming and you Dying my death that I might get restamped in your image, that I might again reflect you in a manner that I was created to do, that sin being wiped away. You can say, Hey, I, I, I'm I'm restamped. You get a t shirt, restamped. But how does that, you, you might be thinking, you know that? I believe that theologically is true. But Matt, let me be straight with you. When I look in the mirror, I, I just don't see it as clear as that. I still see lots of issues. Right? I mean, maybe I'm the only one. Uh, you guys are like, no, nah, that's not me. Positionally, Because of Jesus on the cross, that image has been perfectly restamped with his own image. Practically, this is the rest of our lives. We have a nice word for this called sanctification. Sounds nice. Basically what it means is is reshaping you. Making Jesus shine through you and and, and less of your stink coming through and more of his fragrance. Until, Until one day it's all him and it's none of you. I look forward to that. I, I totally do. But listen, practically speaking, then, how do, we, how do we see this become a more real, concrete reality then? If we're positionally, we're already in that place where we reflect his image, practically speaking, how do we come across that point? How do we come to that point where we show Jesus more and more with our lives so that when people see you, they see Jesus? So that, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, as as the early church in the book of Acts, they were first called Christians in Antioch, which means little Christ or little representatives. In, In Corinthians, where it says we're ambassadors of Christ, representing him, how does that become more of a visible reality in your life? Turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, we're going to read verses three through eight. And I I, I want you to pay close attention to what's happening here in this psalm. It says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Listen, if your God's Jesus, that's a really good thing. Um, If your God is morally dubious, That's not a good thing, but our God is awesome. Uh, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. There's a principle here. Specifically, it's referring to people who create idols. They create things that they're going to worship. Now in our society, it's not so much uh, little carved images, not big bellies and sloping earlobes or you know anything like that. In our society, our idols look a lot different. They sort of look like cars and you know clothes and um, people and things like that. But the idea is this: those who trust in those things look like them resemble them, take on their characteristics and their qualities. In other words, listen, you are created by God to be impressed. You're impressionable by God's design. God has made you like clay so that when something stamps its image on you, you reflect that image. But listen, his intention in that, his purpose in that is that when when we look to him, when we worship him, we reflect him. But the principle, because it's in your makeup, it's in your spiritual DNA, to reflect that which you worship, that means that, that if you're, you're not worshiping the true and the living God, you're going to be reflecting something else. That's why no one is their own person. No one's a self-made man. Everyone is created by what they worship. I mean, just go to a football game. I have nothing against football, um, especially when it's the real football. Ah, okay. Where you barely touch it with your foot. I mean, that's the real stuff, man, let me tell you. But when you look in the stands, I mean, let's let's be honest, some people take it a bit too far, right? It's not a game, it's their life. And they're wearing the same clothes that their idols are wearing. They're dressing like their idols. They want to look just like the guy down there. Why? They're reflecting the object of their worship. And that's just one practical example. Um, all of our life is geared that way, and we will reflect the object of our worship, and we're going to find our identity in that thing that we worship. If Jesus is the one we're reflecting, we're going to be identified by Him, and that's going to be our number one marker on our life, Jesus. That's going to be the number one thing that we're going. Hey, tell me about yourself. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Whatever term you want to use for that, that should be the first marker. The first marker is, you know, I, I love ultimate fighting. <laughs> then I'll step a bit further back and consider a conversation from a, from a distance. Now, what's the first marker? I mean, we have different markers, right? I mean, I am a father. I am a husband. Um, you know, you you have an employment, you have it, and that's that helps shape who you are. But primarily, what's what stamps its image on you should be Jesus, and God has created us to so that happens. So the idea is, as we worship Him, He shines His light on us, and there's a reflection of Him. Last night we were driving, and uh, the the moon just was this, you know, one of these slivers. Uh, my kids call it a nail moon, like your fingernail when you clip it. And uh, you guys know why it's, you only see that much of it? Yeah, the reflection is going somewhere else, right? Um, there, there's only so much of it reflecting the sun. What happens when there's a full moon, though? Oh, it's bright. I mean, our bed is like right under the window. And a few days every month, it's like it's hard to sleep because the light is just coming into our room, uh, right on our faces. We're gonna get a moon, moon burn or something. Uh, <laughs> but, but the, the, it's it's only you only see the moon in as much as it's reflecting the sun. And it's representing the light of the sun. Is it the light? No. It's a reflection of the light. But when you, listen, when you're in proximity to, to behold Jesus and worship with your life, and I, when I say worship, please don't think I'm just talking about singing songs, raising hands and, you know, singing. That's great, and that's part of it, but worship is from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you get up in the morning. You know what I mean? It's, it's the whole day long, right? It's, it's 24-7, it's, it's the daily decisions you're making. It's how, when trials hit, how do you respond? Do you respond with, man, God, you really dealt me a sour hand here. Or do you even think about him at all? Or like a whole day go by and think, you know what? I never even considered Jesus today. When we are in a place where we position ourselves to reflect him, he shines his light and that's where we get our identity from. He informs who we are. And he says to you, like he said to Peter, you are fill in the blank. He, he gives you your identity. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it so well. It says this, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same, what's that word? Image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. And Paul's saying this, when we behold the Lord, when we look to him, he is so informing and transforming who we are that we reflect him with our lives. The key is walking with him, worshiping him, going back to the garden. When did Adam reflect God? When he was looking to God and worshiping God and and he was walking with God, and what was behind him? The tree. But the moment he turned his back, from God and focused on the tree and he beheld the tree with full face and he beheld the fruit with full face. He set God aside and he said, this is what's gonna define who I am from now on. And listen, that, that fruit is proverbial. It's all over the place. It grows everywhere, doesn't it? It's like a weed. You know, Even in your own, the garden of your own life, as you pull out the weeds, somehow that one just keeps growing back up. And you, 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 the way you pull that weed is just say, Jesus, I'm going to walk before you. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to walk with you in the cool of the day. By faith, I'm going to hear those footsteps. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to seek you. And it, it, it'll affect your whole entire outlook to where you get a guy like the Apostle Paul, just a guy no different than you and me that God had grace on. And I, I, I love Paul because... Uh, for so many reasons, but he 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 has a phrase that he uses. He says, "I am what I am by the grace of God." Now let me unpack that a little bit for you. Remember in the Exodus, remember Second Book of the Bible, "Let my people go." Moses goes up on the mountaintop, and there's a fiery bush that's not being consumed by the flames, and and God speaks through the bush and says, "I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell my people to to let them go." And, um, tell Tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and and he says, okay. But you know, when they ask who sent me, you know, what am I going to say? The God that has no name. I mean, there's a band that has no name, but I mean, you know, what am I going to say? And and he says, say to them, I am who I am. Sent you. Now Paul, as he walks with God, reflects that, and he says, I am what I am. By the grace of God. And, and this is what I think he's pointing out. He's, he's not trying to say, I'm, I'm the same as God. But by God's grace, I reflect him. By God's grace, I'm identified by him. And my life is knit with him. And it, it's so uh, connected with him because God has had grace on me. And grace, as you may or may not know, is God's outward movement of favor and blessing to undeserving sinners. Is God continually moving out? Remember, God is always, the whole Bible is about God moving towards man to bring man to himself. Adam, where are you? And and everything about God is outward moving to draw man to himself for his own glory. Paul says this in Acts 17, 28, in him we move, we live, we have our being. Why could he say that? Because his life was about the worship of the true God. Because he understood that he was He was in light of who God is. Now, application for us. The world is constantly trying to label you. Constantly trying to push you into a mold. Okay, I mean, it's it's very visible. Um, For example, today, um, if we just think about clothing, how much of our clothing has a brand name on it? Now, I'm not knocking that. I've got clothes with brand names on it as well. So, I mean... I've got three stripes on my shoe. What does that mean? Adidas, right? You guys knew it just like that. Um, it's it's almost impossible to find clothing without a brand name on it. But it's trying to brand you, all right? Now, again, I'm not knocking clothing that has brand names on it. I, I don't really have I don't have a problem with that. But what I'm trying to say is the world is trying to label you, and put you into a a certain identity. Um, whether it's it's that or or. It could be anything. The culture is always trying to inform who you are and trying to tell you who you are. Or Jesus can tell you who you are. So this, listen, you can find your significance in Christ without those things. You can find who you are without those things. Because listen, those things may be gone. In fact, they will be. Heaven and earth will pass away. But who informs who you are? Does your boss inform who you are at work? Listen, I need you to lie for me. I need you to cover up for me. Is is that gonna inform who you are? Are you gonna let Jesus inform who you are? And so all of life is this question. And here's here's what David says in the Psalms. And I think this is the key. And this is what I want you guys to walk away with. David says this. He says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. In other words, when God said, search me, walk with me, my heart was stirred. said, I want to be identified by you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. And, And you enjoy walking with Jesus and loving Jesus. And the byproduct of that will be his image coming more clear in your life. Those of you who are religiously inclined, gotta do this, I gotta do this, gotta do this, gotta do this. Listen, worship Jesus, and those things will start shining through your life without all the frustration and the self-righteousness that comes with trying to do the things without Jesus. As you walk with him, listen, he re-stamps, practically speaking, in daily life, that image. Those of you who are saying, you know, I look and I just don't see the image and I'm, I want that image and I'm worshiping Jesus but I'm seeing it, here's my encouragement for you. Positionally, it is done. It is finished. It has been re-stamped. Jesus sees you. The Father sees you as he sees Jesus. and You can walk without fear of condemnation. Just keep worshiping Jesus. The fruit grows. Some fruit grows slower than others, but the fruit grows. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... Uh, The fact that we're made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And Lord, we ask that we would be a people who are molded by you. You have made us impressionable, Lord. But we ask that the fingerprints on our lives that shape us and mold us would be yours, Lord. That you, Jesus, would be magnified in our lowly bodies. You said, seek my face. Lord, may our hearts say, your face will we seek. Would you be exalted in us? Would you be worshiped by us? That we might know who we are. Because you will inform us.